I'm really bummed that this has to be my last message before I leave because this is literally like the worst, this is literally the worst thing that like ever happened in the book of Judges and possibly the Bible. This is, I just call this literally like Judges 19, the worst chapter in the Bible, which sounds weird because we love the Bible, but there's some gnarly stuff that happens. So buckle up because this is going to be really uncomfortable for a minute, but then hopefully we can make something good out of it. So, Judges 19. What's our series called? Kingless Kingdom. Judges 19 is basically the wrap-up to the book. There's still chapters 20 and 21, but it's just basically the aftermath of the horrible thing that happens in Judges 19. Judges 19 is the pure, like the most pure example of what a kingless kingdom looks like. This is what the entire book of Judges has been building to. Just all of these chapters of people saying, I don't wanna do things God's way. I wanna do things my way. I don't wanna follow the Lord. I don't need a king. I've got this. I'm in control. I've got it all figured out. It all builds to a head here in this chapter. So I'm gonna give you the background of what happened. So there's a guy. We don't know his name, and he's got a concubine. Here's what that is. That's somebody who on paper is your wife, but actually she's a sex slave. She's somebody that you basically purchased, a, a wife that you bought, and her only job in the world is just to have sex with you. This is something that happened in the Old Testament. It is not a good thing. God did not approve, but this is what was going on at the time because Israel was copying the way that the other nations lived their life. They said, oh, these nations like Canaan, they have concubines, we should have concubines too. It's not enough that I have the wife that God gave me, I also need a sex slave. So, starts out great, right? Well, here's what happens. The woman, the, the concubine, she runs away from this man. We don't know why. We don't know if he was abusive. We don't know if he hit her. We don't know if he yelled at her. We just know that she ran away. So then in Judges chapter 19, the man tries to get her back, and he goes to the house of her father. And he ends up going to her dad and basically saying, hey, I want, you know, my concubine back, your daughter, can I have her back? And the husband's like, oh yeah, let's have a big feast and let's talk about it. And so they have these parties and they talk about it and the wife, the concubine, she never even says anything. She doesn't even have a line in the story. She's really just an object in this story, which is super sad. So you go through the story and the men are talking about, oh yeah, I'll give you my daughter so you can do whatever you want to her. Sounds great, man, thank you. You're such a great guy. Well, then he gets, his, he gets his concubine back, and they decide to go back home. So they're traveling home, but it gets late, and they say, we've got to stop at a town. So they stop at this town called Gibeah, and they run into an old man. And the old man just came out from work in the fields, and he's basically like, hey, you guys should stay at my house, you know? This is a culture where we welcome our guests, so come into my home. It's going to be great. So the old man welcomes this man and his concubine into his house, and they have a little house party, and they're eating and drinking, and that's when everything goes wrong. So um, chapter, six, or chapter 19, verse 22 is where I'm going to read from. As they were making their hearts merry, that means drinking a ton. Behold, the men of the city, worthless fellows, perverted men, surrounded the house, beating on the door. And they said to the old man, the master of the house, bring out the man who came into your house that we may know him. Now, 
that is in the New King James that we may know him carnally. In the ESV, it's just that we may know him. That's the Bible translators cleaning up basically in the Hebrew. What it literally means is bring out that man so that we can have sex with him. So just imagine this scene. A mob of angry men have shown up at this old man's house and said, hey, that guy who is traveling, who's staying at your house, bring him out because we want to abuse him. It's, this is gnarly. So then verse 23 the man, the master of the house, went out to them and said, no, 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 guys, do not do this wicked thing. This man has come into my house. He's a guest. Do not do this vile thing. So, okay, good job, old man. Like, props to you. You're doing a good job here. But then look at verse 24. This is his solution to the problem. Behold, here are my virgin daughter and his concubine. Let me bring them out. Abuse them and violate them and do whatever seems good to you but don't do anything against this man. But the men would not listen to him, so they seized his concubine, basically shoved her out the door, and they abused her sexually all night until morning. And as dawn began to break, they let her go. And as morning appeared, the woman came and fell down at the door of the man's house where her master was until it was light. And the master rose up in the morning, and when he opened the door of the house and went out to go his way, behold, there was the concubine lying at the door with her hands on the threshold. And he said to her, get up, let us get going. But there was no answer. This is ridiculous. This is like seriously like one of the most heaviest chapters. Like this, this woman, she's, she's already a sex slave. That's her life. What a hard life that would be. And now she tries to run away from her husband and he gets her back. So now she's trapped in this abusive relationship. And she shows up at this house thinking that she's got a safe place to stay. And these men come and say, we, we want to attack and abuse the man. And the old man says, no, you don't do that to a man. Don't do that to him. That'd be, that would be horrible. But you can do it to her. And they shove her out the door. And she is literally abused to death. It's terrible. It's literally one of the worst things I've ever read. It gets worse. What happens is the man realizes that his concubine is dead. She was abused to death. He puts her on his donkey, takes her home, chops her body up into a bunch of little pieces and mails different body parts to like people in Israel, to different tribes. You know, he sends a hand to one tribe, a foot to another tribe with a note attached basically saying, look what they did. Look what these guys in Gibeah did. This is what they do to people. This is terrible. We need to fight them. And then the rest of the book is about a war that gets started started over this. And just everyone goes to war and everyone kills one another, and that's how the book of Judges ends. Kingless kingdom. It's terrible. So I'm not going to say amen and have you walk away right now because that would be terrible. So we need to talk about this. This is actually a huge situation. Here's, the, here's, what, I, here's what I notice about this, and I think it's a really important thing for us guys and girls to really think about. Because the problem that I see in this story is the problem of, of objectification. Here's what I mean by that. Objectification is the action of degrading someone to the status of a mere object. This woman in the story, this poor concubine, she, we don't even know her name. She is just an object in this story. She doesn't even have a line. She never gets to speak for herself. She is just an object that men use. Her husband uses her. Her, her father uses her for money. These men abuse her for their own perverted, twisted desires. It's so sad. And so I think this is something, honestly, 
that we as guys and girls need to take notice of because it's in the Bible. And the first thing we need to understand is just because something's in the Bible doesn't mean that God approves of it. Like God didn't like inspire the people who wrote Judges and thinking like, oh, this is gonna be a wonderful story that's gonna instruct how we're supposed to treat women. No, this is a story that God allowed to be put in the Bible as a warning for us. And we can look at the Old Testament and say, man, things are so bad back then, but you know what? This kind of objectification is going on today. And so I just wanna give you guys some quick thoughts on this because here's the thing. There's a big debate going on nowadays about this, you know, like, oh, like women are objectified. Who's at fault? Some people will blame women. They'll be like, oh, women just need to be more modest. If they were just more modest, like it wouldn't happen. If they would just dress better, then none of these bad things would happen to them. That's wrong. That's <laughs> so wrong. But then there's other people who will say, oh, it's all the men's fault. Like men are just perverts. And if they would stop being perverts, everything would be better. Guys, I think that what we need to understand is that in this story, the problem is not, it's not a man problem or a woman problem. This is a kingless kingdom problem. This is what happens to a society, a culture, when you don't follow God, when you turn away from him. Now in the Bible, um, there is objectification that happens pretty quickly. After Adam and Eve are kicked out of the garden because of their sin, a couple generations later, there's a guy named Lamech who shows up. And this is a violent dude who swings a sword, kills his enemies, and he collects wife, wives like property. That's his whole deal. Objectification is all around. Here's the science behind objectification. And this is the result of sin nature over time corrupting our minds. When a man looks at an attractive woman, the part of his brain that lights up Scientists have actually studied this. The part of his brain that lights up is not the part of the brain that sees a human with feelings and, and a heart and a soul. It's the part of the brain that lights up that when they, when they see a tool. Like, this is something I can use. When a guy looks at an attractive woman because of his sinful flesh nature, that part of his brain lights up. A huge reason this happens is because of widespread use and easy access of pornography, which we talked about at camp. This is a huge problem that not only guys deal with, but actually in 2017, many girls struggle with as well. I wanna tell you guys something, just to kind of open up your eyes to objectification and how we all do it, myself included, I am a human with a sin nature. I wanna tell you guys about something I found out called global and local processing. Here's how this works, okay? We look at things differently. If you are a global processor, when you look at a house, you see it as a house. You just look at it and you go, oh, that's a house. I see it for the sum of its parts. It's a complete house. However, if you're a local processor, which some of you guys might be, you look at a house and you notice the, the, the roof and you notice the windows and the doors and the knobs and all these different things. You, you notice the intricate details of the house. Now here's what's interesting. Studies have shown that both men and women tend to see men through the lens of global processing, which means when you see a man, your first instinct is to see him as the sum of his parts. You just look at him and you're like, oh yeah, that's a dude. Like I just see a dude. It's just, it's like, it's a dude. <laughs> but here's the problem. Studies also show that when men and women look at women, they usually see them through local processing, which means women are seen and judged by both guys and girls based on their parts, not the whole person that they are. And girls, you might already feel this. You might feel that people are constantly analyzing you for different parts of who you are. It, women are at a serious disadvantage in our culture because our culture is built around objectification. 
We see it in pornography, we see it in cultural expectations that we have on women. Culture, well, you know, girls, you walk down the, the grocery aisle and you see those magazines and it's basically telling you this is the ideal, this is what you need to look like, lose weight, get the right bikini, look this way, this is what men want. Advertising culture is the same way. Commercials constantly objectify women. They, they hardly ever do the same thing to men. And even clothing brands. I mean, it's so hard for girls to even find clothes that fit right now these days because you go into the store and the, the clothing just gets smaller and smaller and you're trying to honor the Lord and yet you're competing against all these different things. Here's the thing. Scripture shows us there's a problem behind the problem. I'm gonna get to it. So here's the problem. Here is why people did what they did in Judges 19. It's not just that they were perverted men. It's deeper than that. You see, when sin entered creation, God's original intention for humans was corrupted, completely twisted, completely changed. See, when God made people, Adam and Eve, when he made the original humans, they were meant to be image bearers of God. What that means is they carry around with them the presence and the power and the image of God. God was like, I'm gonna make people and I'm gonna make them like me. They're gonna be just like me. They're gonna have not only, um, they're not gonna only look like me, but they're gonna have my heart and my character. So this is how people viewed one another. When Adam and Eve were first made, they viewed each other as family, brother, sister, husband, wife, respected, honored, valued. Wouldn't it be nice if everyone treated everyone that way? See, the idea was if someone is valuable to God, then they're valuable to me. But then Satan shows up, and what he does, the serpent slithers up, and he, like, he didn't just offer a piece of fruit, okay? It wasn't just like this little, like, oh, mom said not to eat the cookies, but I did. Oh, it's a sin. No, listen, when Satan offered that fruit, when the serpent offered it, what he was doing was he wasn't just giving them a piece of fruit. He was saying, hey, God said this is right and wrong, but why don't you define what is right and wrong yourself? You can be your own God. You can decide what's right and wrong. And they made the mistake, and now we're all suffering the consequences. And so what we see is now instead of image bearers, our natural state as humans is image defilers. We come out of the womb with this sin nature that defiles the image of God. We try to turn people into commodities for our own benefit. Here's what that means. It means that you look at someone and you don't think, how can I love them? How can I serve them? How can I treat them better than me? Our natural state is to look at the people around us and say, what can I get out of them? How can I use this person to step over them, to gain social status? When it comes to things like lust, how can I look at this person and use them for my own gratification and pleasure at their expense? How people view one another now is competition, objects, and enemies. And people think, I like what I see, therefore I take what I want. It's messed up. It's why we have sweatshops. It's why we have reality TV. It's why we have things like pornography. It's because we are just, we're messed up. We're a messed up people. Now here's the thing. Here's the thing. The answer to sexual brokenness is not sexual liberation. I just wanna talk for a minute about what's going on in our culture right now, okay? You guys live in probably one of the most sexually liberal cultures that's ever existed. And here's what I mean by liberal. I'm not talking about politics. What I'm talking about is saying, yeah, God said this, but did he really? Like, and I don't know, the scripture seems kind of fuzzy. I just wanna do me. 
I just want to live life the way I want. I want to wear what I want. I want to dress how I want. I want to just do whatever I want. I want to just do whatever makes me happy, and no one can tell me otherwise. That's the culture that we live in. This is how bad it's gotten. I'm in a youth pastor group on Facebook of like 2,000 youth pastors, like all over America. And somebody posted uh, something about a, a TV show, okay? It's a popular TV show right now. I'm not gonna say which one it is, but it's got a ton of sex scenes in it. And he basically was like, hey, youth pastors, what do you think about this show? I was scrolling through the comments and there are a ton of youth pastors in this group who are watching this show and they're totally fine with it. And I'm like, oh my gosh, it's gotten so bad that we've got pastors justifying sin. Now listen, some of you guys might be here. You're like, well, you know, yeah, I know it's wrong to watch pornography, but like, what's wrong with the sex scene? Like I, maybe some of you guys watch shows with sex scenes in them, okay? Maybe that's where you're at. Let me explain to you, just because I love you, why that's wrong. When they put people on a screen, stripping down and, and just going for it in a, in a way that's outside of marriage, and in a way that people aren't, like, it, it's, here's why it's wrong. It's objectification. It's saying people like this. People want to watch this. People will pay money for this. And so by our Hulu or Netflix subscriptions, we're paying money to watch people have sex. And you might think, well, you know, they don't really show anything. It's not, it's not that big a deal. You know, it's not that wrong, you know. That, that might be your mentality. Listen, let me frame it to you this way. And this is going to be really awkward, but this whole chapter is already really awkward, okay? Imagine you went to somebody's wedding, okay? And the wedding was great. Everything's awesome. And then the, like, husband and wife got up on the stage, and they're like, hey, so for our first act as a married couple, we actually filmed a sex scene. And we want to show it to you so you guys can just enjoy like our marriage and our relationship. Here it is. And they throw it up on the screen and they're like, it's really tasteful. You can't really like see anything, but you know what's happening. Like you would be sitting there. You'd be like, oh my gosh, I want to throw up. Like this is terrible. Like, oh, like you, would, you would be so disturbed because you would feel like you are watching something that you know is sacred and between a husband and wife and you know that you're not supposed to be watching that. But then why is it different if it's two actors on a screen that you've never met? You see, there's a degree of separation when it comes to things like pornography and TV shows with sex scenes. You're like, I've never met this person, I never will. Therefore, it doesn't matter, it doesn't matter. That's what we constantly are thinking. The enemy is trying to sell you guys the idea that it doesn't matter. But it does, the answer to sexual brokenness is not sexual liberation. Girls, I feel for you because you guys live in a time right now, especially, it's all over Instagram. This idea that it's just like, girls, just be, Whatever you want to be, dress however you want to want. It doesn't matter if the bathing suit is that small. You wear it and you go, girl. And because guys will like it and they'll comment and they'll add the fire emoji and the clapping hands and your girlfriends will come and support you and say, you go, girl. But that's not, that's sexual liberation. It's saying that it doesn't matter if I stumble people and it doesn't matter if I degrade the image of God in myself. Here's, here's something I taught to the Bible college and uh, I call it the the sexual sandwich, which sounds really weird, but bear with me, okay? Listen, okay, bear with me. If you make a sandwich for somebody, what do you want them to do with it? Yeah, that's your intention, right? You've made a sandwich so that someone will eat the sandwich, okay? So let's say you give them the sandwich and then along comes a bunch of men who are just pigs. You know, they just, they're, they're just a bunch of pig men. 
and they take that sandwich and they stomp it on the ground, right? Well, then let's say a bunch of women come and they're more feminist and they're like, that's not what a sandwich is for. That's wrong. We'll show you what a sandwich is for. And then they take the sandwich and they dip it in paint and they start painting houses with it. Are either one of them right? No. So why did God design sexuality? Why did he design it? For marriage. For husbands and wives to enjoy one another. And actually, not just like, it's not, it's not using one another the way the world does. It actually is a deepening of a relationship in a way that you'll never understand until you get married. But it's something special and sacred that God made. Just like you make a sandwich and you want someone to eat it. God made sexuality because he wants you to experience it in the right context. So, if you've got men who are like taking sexuality and saying, women are just there for me to look at, they're just objects that I can use, and they're just, oh, I'm gonna objectify them. Well then if you have women who say that's not what sexuality is for, but then they say, you know what, I'm gonna objectify myself. I'm gonna go on Instagram and post whatever the heck I want because it's my body, my choice. Is either one of those things using it for the right reason? Is that, what, what is it? is that what it was made for? No, and I'm just telling you guys this because I love you. We need to ask the question. We need to look inside our hearts and ask, what kind of culture are we creating with how we are living, seeing, acting, and speaking? With the shows that we choose to watch with our friends, with the music that we choose to listen to, and you know that I'm not one of those guys who says only listen to Christian music. I love all types of music, but there's some music and movies and TV shows out there that are undoubtedly perverted, and they twist your view of sexuality. And the more you let those things into your mind, the more corrupted your mind gets, and you'll find yourself saying, it's not a big deal. I'm old enough. I can handle this. Who cares? Who cares? Who cares? Who cares? Junior high kids, yeah, they shouldn't listen to this or watch this, but me, I'm in 11th grade. I can handle myself. You don't even know how many lives have been destroyed because of addictions to these things. So, this is a short version of kind of a talk that I gave, and there's a longer version out there. But to boil it all down, I think we need to start asking the question, not ask the question, what can I get away with? Because that's what we're always asking, you know? We're always asking, like, guys, you're always asking, like, okay, like, what can I text this girl that's not, like, too over the line, but still, like, flirty enough that, like, I can get her to like me? You know, like, guys, listen, guys, if you're a guy where you are interested in a girl and you're texting her these really deep, long conversations late at night, but you've also got 10 other conversations open with other girls on your phone, what are you doing? You're objectifying women. You're saying that I'm gonna get an ego boost and a rise out of all of these girls and not actually listen to what God is saying and see if God actually directs me to a special girl that he has for me. I'm just gonna just get what I want from these girls. Girls, I know it's hard. I'm not a girl. I can never stand in your shoes. There's so much pressure on you. But my encouragement to you as an older brother is don't ask the question, what can I get away with in whatever context you want to fill that in with? But ask the question, what is kind? That's the question we need to be asking. Guys, is it kind for you to be flirting and texting with 20 girls? That is not kind to them to lead them on in that way. If you're just talking to them like a brother talks to a sister, that's fine, but if you're leading these girls on, that's not kind to them. So many hearts have been broken by that objectification. 
men and women, if we are watching pornography, is that kind? No, it's not. Studies have shown, and this is a real eye-opener, but studies have shown that in pornography, uh, which is a huge problem nowadays because we all walk around with these machines that are unfiltered access to everything in the entire universe. And if you don't have a filter on this, you're like a person trying to recover from alcoholism, but you live in a bar where the drinks are free. The odds do not sound good for you in that situation. It's not kind to look at pornography because, well, here's a great reason why. Studies have shown that like somewhat 60% of women in these pornographies are victims of sex trafficking. So at a young age, they were kidnapped, ripped from their parents' home, thrown in front of a camera, and you've got someone saying, I will kill you unless you make these videos. Guys, I know that it's super common. I know that you've grown up with this. I know for a lot of you guys, it's like you were exposed in an early age, but we need to fight against it. We need to start asking, what is kind? Is the way that I talk, the way that I flirt, is it kind? The way that I dress, is it kind? Not like trying to meet some standard, but is it kind to people who are struggling? This goes for guys and girls. Guys and girls can stumble one another by the way they dress, the way they flirt, the way they talk, the way they act, and the way they objectify one another. I'm gonna close with this, because this is the hope, okay? So the whole story, Kingless Kingdom, we've seen like what happens at the end of the road. When you get to the point where you're so just like, we don't care what God says, that you're objectifying the people to the point where you're abusing them to death. Oh my gosh, what a terrible story. So what does Jesus say about sexuality and objectification? Jesus is brilliant. Jesus is so amazing, okay? So kingless kingdom, right? But we don't live in a kingless kingdom, do we? Who's the king? Come on. Jesus. And what have we learned over the years? If who is king? If Jesus is king, then what? That changes everything. So what does Jesus say about this? He stands on a mountain with a group of people. He gives the Sermon on the Mount. He brings them around, and he says, all right, listen, guys. You've heard it said, do not commit adultery. And everyone goes, oh, yes, don't commit adultery. Yes, it's very bad. I, I would never do that. <laughs> But here's what Jesus is knowing. He knows their heart, and he knows that in their hearts, yeah, these guys aren't committing adultery in public, but they're thinking thoughts that are wrong. They're objectifying women in their minds. So Jesus says, listen, I say this to you. You've heard it said don't commit adultery, but in my kingdom, you don't even look at a woman lustfully. The Sermon on the Mount is not helpful tips. It's not like, here are Jesus' 10 helpful tips to live a good life. That's not, no, Jesus, when he gave the Sermon on the Mount, what he was saying was, if you are my disciple and you live in my kingdom, this is how you live. This is how you live. So what Jesus is saying, if you unpack what he means in that short verse, I say unto you, you've heard it said, don't commit adultery, but I say to you, do not even look at a woman with lust. What Jesus is saying is, listen, men, in my kingdom, Women are so valued and so precious. They're our sisters. We, in my kingdom, if you live under my rule, you are a man 
who does not even look at a woman with objectification or lust in your heart. You look at her as a sister, and you value her for her beauty in the inside and out. You don't say, oh, she's so hot. You say, no, oh, what a, what a beautiful just creation of God. She's so sweet. She's so kind. I love her personality. I love her heart. I want to get to know her personally. I want to become her friend. And as you do that, as you value a woman in that way, then eventually God opens the doors for right sexual relationship in marriage. But our culture has trained us to do it backwards. We see somebody and we immediately start objectifying and it's all based on sex and that's why there's so many divorces. Because people got married and thought they were hot and then they found out, oh, people don't stay hot. So I need somebody new. That's wrong. And we live in this culture where we are being constantly, guys and girls, we're being fed a message that this is normal, but it's not. In the Garden of Eden, this is not how things were. And when Jesus comes back and brings his kingdom, there will be no more lust or sexual objectification, which is something we should rejoice in because we all struggle. So where do we go from here? Heavy stuff, pray about it. You've heard three different mini messages today. Go home and pray. How do we apply this? Ask the Lord, God, what did you wanna show me? Maybe it was something that Matt said. Maybe it was something David said. Maybe it was something Aaron said. Maybe it was something from all three. But you need to go home and ask God, God, what are you showing me about my own life? This is how we end the book, okay? You need to really pray and ask God, Lord, what part of my life is a kingless kingdom? What part of my life is not fully surrendered to you? We just got back from take hold camp, you know, let go and give it all to God, but that's camp. And we have to keep doing it down here on the mountain. We have to keep going. So take hold of what God has for you by realizing that you're not called to live in a kingless kingdom. You need King Jesus. Ask him, Jesus, what in my life is not fully surrendered to you. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the book of Judges. Lord, what a heavy, heavy last couple chapters. Horrible things happen. Jesus, we thank you that you're the king. We thank you that you're a king, Lord, that you care so much about people, men and women. They're so valuable and precious in your eyes. And God, you've called for us to live a new way, a new way to be human. Lord, not to objectify one another, not to lie and steal like Micah, not to hold on to idols, but to trust you in everything. God, we're human, and even though we just got back from camp, we're sinners, and we've got idols in our life. We're still growing. I pray that no one here, myself included, would think, I've arrived, I'm here, I've made it. God, we need constant sanctification. We need to constantly become more like you. So I just pray for these guys over the next two months that you would shape them to become more like you. Help them, Lord, to become more in your image. Our natural state is just image defiler, but we have a new nature now because we have the Holy Spirit, Jesus. Through you, we can bear your image the way we were supposed to. But the world is constantly coming in and undercutting what you're trying to do. The world is constantly sending us messages through TV, through our friends, through our Instagram feed. We're being bombarded 
every day with a false message of what life and love and sex and religion and friendship and all these things look like. Jesus, help us to not be conformed to the patterns of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of our mind. I pray for these guys that you would renew their mind today. Help them to take the things that they learned today and apply them. Lord, we wanna repent of our sin, of objectifying one another, of stealing, of lying, of having idols in our life, all of these things, God, we wanna repent. And we just wanna say to you, Jesus, Lord, make this youth group a kingdom with a king. Help us, Lord, to not be a kingless kingdom but help us to follow you with our whole heart and our whole life. In your name, amen. Amen. All right.